Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Hi, welcome to Herd Tell. It is Tuesday. It is August the 16th. Year of our Lord 2022 just continues to roll right along. Hope you and yours are well wherever you are across the street or around the world. And however you're joining us, glad you're here. Appreciate you giving us the most precious thing your time. We have some really important stuff we want to cover today. Try to turn down the noise of the news cycle a little bit, get to some information, do what we always do. Discern the times we live in. It's the most important thing we do to understand what's going on around us. A couple stories that need our attention. Uh, the Salman Rushdie attack over the weekend. We have an update on that, including Iran's response, since a lot of people automatically pointed their finger at him because, oh, I don't know, they've only for decades called for him to be murdered. And they almost did it. So we'll have an update on the Salman Rushdie attack. Also, there's trouble down south in Mexico. Uh, AMLO, the Mexican president, is extending control over the National Guard, keeping it under his control, trying to fight the violence and the drug cartel war, but at the same time causing some problems of whether or not he has the power to do so. We'll cover that story in just a little bit. Um our end of the show segment, we always try to do something uplifting. This is an incredible story that's been out in a couple different outlets. A uh, student down in Texas who's from Haiti found a baby in a garbage can and is now raising it and raising money to adopt the child. We'll talk about that incredible story to end the program. Our guest today, this is an important one, folks. We talk about it frequently on this program. We're going to highlight it today. Finesse Montero Rivera. Um, she is a wonderful advocate on criminal justice matters, and she has had a piece out talking about the war on drugs and who it affects most, why it disproportionately affects the black community and other minorities. We're going to talk about how the business model of the war on drugs has overtaken the legal and law enforcement angle of the war on drugs. We're going to talk about the effect that addiction has from the war on drugs and is there comparisons and lessons to learn for the current opioid crisis? What's the similarities? What's the difference? Also going to talk about why we just cannot have adult conversations about drug use and addiction in America when it comes to things like preventative care and easing measures and such things. Uh, Finesse, Finesse Moreno-Rivera joining us on Hertel. Really excited to talk through this very difficult issue with her. But first, let's start um, a little closer to home if you're a Baptist like me. We've covered this story a couple times already. There was a major development over the weekend. We gave it an extra day or two to breathe a little bit um, before bringing it to you, but we do want to talk about the Southern Baptist Convention again. You know we talk about abuse frequently on this program. We've had guests on like Jennifer Greenberg and others. We'll continue to do that because abuse is universal, whether it's a government, 
whether it's a church, whether it's a school, as we've seen all too often in different parts of the country, or whether it's a church in this situation, or even it can just be in a family situation in a family. All those things have one thing in common. The abusers use a power dynamic to continue their abuse. Let's go to CBS News uh, with the update on this. Leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention on Friday said that several of the denominations, major entities, are under investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice in the wake of its multiple problems related to clergy sex abuse. Now, Southern Baptists don't call it clergy. It's pastors and staff workers and such, but you get the idea. The SBC's executive committee has received a subpoena, but no individuals have been subpoenaed at this point, according to the committee's lawyers. This is an ongoing investigation, and as such, we cannot comment on our discussions with the DOJ, they said in a statement. The statement also included executive committee members, seminary presidents, and heads of mission organizations gave few details about the investigation, but indicated it dealt with widespread sexual abuse problems that had rocketed the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. into the headlines. Individually and collectively, each SBC entity is resolved to fully and completely cooperate with the investigation, the lawyery language of the statement said, because it was written by a lawyer. Quote, while we continue to grieve and lament past mistakes related to sexual abuse, current leaders across the SBC have demonstrated a firm conviction to address those issues in the past and are implementing measures to ensure that they are never repeated in the future. Hold that thought for a second. Earlier this week, SBC President Barter Barber, Bart Barber, excuse me, who also signed Friday's statement, announced the names of Southern Baptist pastors and church members who will serve on the task force. Southern Baptist sex abuse survivor Krista Brown, by the way, who's been doing this for a long, long time, and this doesn't get done without her and other abuse survivors agitating, who has long called for the SBC to do more to address sex abuse across the church, celebrated the news on Twitter with a hallelujah, it's about time, and this is what is needed. Another survivor, Jules Woodson, went public with her abuse story in 2018, has been pushing for reforms ever since. She reacted to the investigation by tweeting, let justice roll down. Oklahoma Pastor Mike Cabone, who serves on the executive committee and is the vice chair of the new abuse task force, said on Twitter, it, quote, it is not something to fear. If there is more work to do, we will do it. Why am I bringing this up? Because the SBC did this kicking and screaming. We covered it as it happened. Things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. There was a large contingent inside the SBC that fought these measures. All right. I'm not just saying this. I have talked to people that were on the committees that were writing the resolutions, the pushback they got, the attacks that they took trying to get this stuff brought to the general public. Now, the wide berth of the SBC wanted this investigation. It was the pastors and leaderships, a small portion of them, and the executive committee that were dragging their feet on this. I'm bringing it up because there's already people, and I ran into some of them over the weekend, who are going to want to politicize this. They want to say the DOJ is just investigating the Southern Baptist Convention because it's full of a bunch of conservatives, a bunch of conservative Christians, and ergo, most of those people voted for Donald Trump, and clearly this is politically motivated. No, it's not. A billion-dollar company who is the largest Christian denomination outside of the Catholic Church in America, with millions of members, covered up and purposely tolerated abuse. Now, it's not like the Catholic Church where they have direct control over the clergy. This is a little different beast. But they definitely knew, and the people on the executive committee, some of whom have already resigned or moved on to other things, and who are no doubt part of this investigation, knew about it. We know they knew about it because their priority was to protect the brand. What did we start out talking about? Power structures. 
you have a billion dollar church denomination and the money has to keep flowing and the ministry, quote unquote, has to keep going and we don't want things to look bad. That's a power structure that is just a magnet for abusers because they can use all that against their victims and they can use things like this is politically motivated. They're just after a bunch of conservatives. You don't think the abusers are going to use that, too? They will. Make sure you're on the right side of this when it shakes out, because when it comes to abuse and abuse victims, you don't want to be the one doing the justifying on why you did or said nothing. More Hertel right after this. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Back to her to tell you may have saw the news over the weekend. Uh, author Salman Rusty, uh, famous for writing things like the Satanic Verses, which got him a death sentence fatwa from uh, Iran, among others. He has long been a target. Somebody finally got him. He was speaking up in New York. Somebody jumped on stage, stabbed him. Now it does look like he's going to live. Uh, reports are he was stabbed in the throat and abdomen, but they think he will live and recover. Now, his one son made a statement along the lines of these were life changing injuries but they do think he will live in the meantime what does this tell us well nbc news uh here uh iran said monday that salman Rushdie and his supporters are to blame for the stabbing attack that left the fame author hospitalized with serious injuries of course they did in its first public comment since the assault tehran denied any involvement but sought to justify the attack which has been celebrated on the front pages and in coverage across the country's media Quote, we do not consider anyone other than him and his supporters worthy of blame or even condemnation, Iran Foreign Ministry spokesman Nazar Kanani said. No one has a right to accuse Iran. The insult that was done and the support that was given was an insult to all religions. No, it wasn't. And the suspect, identified as 24-year-old Hadi Matar from New Jersey, pled not guilty. Initial police investigations found Matar expressed views sympathetic to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard uh, on social media accounts. According to U.S. senior official familiar with the investigation, Matar flew from New York to Lebanon in 2018, returning to the U.S. via a flight from Moscow three weeks later. It's not hard to put the pieces together here, whether Iran directly told this guy to do it or not. They know, he knew, everybody knows the score here. Yes, Iran's responsible for this because they've wanted him dead for many, many years. I don't care if it was blasphemous or not. Speech is not violence. Violence is violence. And when you take a knife and try to kill somebody because of something they wrote decades ago, a rather mild book, by the way, then you're the violent one. And it's inexcusable. This should be easy to condemn. 
And yet there's some people waffling on this, having a hard time. Iran is an evil, wicked regime. They don't, doesn't matter if their religion got blasphemed or not. They don't have an excuse to propitiate violence against people. Our free speech must be defended, especially against violence, especially against people like the Iranian regime that is known to be wicked and supporters of terrorists and brutalizers of their own Iranian people. That's how that went down. Keep an eye. I hope Salman Rusty recovers and always keep an eye out for people who want to justify violence against speech. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we're going to talk war on drugs. We've talked about this quite a bit on this program. We're going to keep talking about it because this problem is not going away. New voice to us on this topic, Finesse Moreno-Rivera is joining us. She's a Young Voices contributor. She has a lot of background on this, both in the private sector and uh, advising and working with uh, authorities. Finesse, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Here's where I want to start because... This is one of those things that has gotten really buzzwordy and trendy, and we talk about, oh, the war on drugs is bad. Okay, give us the historical perspective before we dive into this thing, because it's been going on for so long. You open up your piece in uh, Blavity about uh, Nixon in 71. I'm old enough to remember George the Elder Bush holding up crack cocaine on national TV in primetime. This has been <laughs> going on for 50-plus years. I don't think people really put the historical term how long we've been doing this Set the stage for us before we dive into this. What is the war on drugs? Because this is we talk about Afghanistan being 20 years. We're 50 years into this. Yes, it has been going on, go, uh, excuse me, ongoing for quite some time now, for over 50 years, starting with Nixon. And this started with the Vietnam War with our veterans who were addicted primarily with heroin. Um, Unfortunately, as the years went on, one of Nixon's assistants did admit that he wore on drugs was pretty much just a front in order for them to go after um, the African-American voters, as well as the so-called hipsters that were consuming marijuana. So this was just a way to really infiltrate those communities um, who were marginalized at the time. And amazingly enough, and this is going to be a theme as we talk about the war on drugs, the reaction to all oh, these veterans are coming home addicted to heroin and other things that they'd brought back from over there. You know, a lot of it was them self-medicating on top of everything else, but we'll get into that some other time. It wasn't, let's get these people treatment. It's how do we punish this and make it go away? And that's the theme that keeps popping up over and over again. And when we talk about the war on drugs outside of the addiction issues and the criminality, that's really the problem right there, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what we have seen is that Nixon's war on drugs just really set a deadly precedent for um, incoming administrations since then. Unfortunately, when we think about the war on drugs, we immediately think about the anti-drug abuse policy in 1986, unfortunately spearheaded by Mr. Biden himself looking at the sentencing disparity between crack cocaine and power cocaine. Unfortunately, what we were seeing there was more 
of a knee-jerk reaction of it being punitive rather than helping these communities. And unfortunately, as we all know, that policy wasn't based on evidence or scientific methods whatsoever. Um, there were also many studies that were proven false as well, looking at how crack cocaine was more dangerous than powder cocaine. And so what you were seeing, again, were the pure, poor communities, such as Black communities, rather than white affluent communities who were being punished for uh, their drug abuse. Yeah, and the accusation was you know, crack cocaine was just going to be the terminology we were going to use to talk about inner cities and minorities in the inner cities to the greater swath of America. That was the accusation. How much truth was there to that? It was absolutely false. Um, unfortunately, you know, I like to compare the now to then when we're seeing, you know, this opioid epidemic, it's, you know, it's being named a crisis where crack cocaine was looked as more as a problem and an actual crime. So unfortunately, what we were seeing was pure, poor communities who weren't receiving the help that they actually needed and who were being labeled as criminals. What's the, where's the stereotype come from? Aside from, of course, we're talking, there's class and race involved here, and there's no way to unwind that ball. But why does addiction have such a stigma to it? Where's the stereotype come from, do you think? Because is it... Is it just the visual of it, of somebody destroying their own life and, well, they did it to themselves, that part of it? Is it all the other stuff, the socioeconomic and the racial and the class that's put on top of it? Because we sure don't seem to have a problem with, you know, stockbrokers doing cocaine constantly, which is a known thing. That gets treated completely different. I know that's a big ball of mess, but where do we even start to attack it from? That's a really good question, Andrew, because... <laughs> the question to that is it's definitely multifaceted. It's socioeconomic. It's also race. Um, and so I think that in order to start to make amends with what has occurred with the drug policy, um, its negative effects, it's definitely to treat drug abuse as a health crisis, as something that should be looked at as as a health crisis, as in it shouldn't be looked at as a crime itself. And unfortunately, in our country, we tend to stigmatize drug abuse negatively. Um, it's definitely looked down upon, especially when you're comparing it to something such as mental health, right? We're just now as a country starting to um, look into mental health and realizing that it's a norm for us and it should be talked about and there should be resources for individuals rather than there being a negative stigma attached to that. Yeah. Finesse uh, Moreno Rivera joining us. Okay. Here's the problem with that. And I know this because I've been writing and advocating about it for a couple of years. If you're going to treat it as a public health thing, that means you have to deal with it as a public health issue, which means you're not only doing treatment, you're trying to do prevention. And every time somebody tries to do mitigation or prevention with drug abusers, they always get accused of without exception. And I've seen it over and over again, and you have too oh, you're just feeding the addicts by doing this. How do we have that conversation? Because every time you go to a municipality and go, hey, we have a harm reduction strategy or, hey, you know, you can't take somebody from zero to 60 on addiction. You have to give them this intermediate steps that are kind of icky. How do we have that conversation with us? Because when we start talking about the war on drugs overall, that intermediate step of we don't need to be punitive, we need to do this treatment stuff, that's where the, the sticky part of the, this really gets ugly. And we don't seem to be able to communicate not only with communities, but just with like government agencies and others, can we? No, no, we can't. And again, it goes back to that negative stigma 
for individuals where we are just so based as a culture and being punitive rather being um, looking at a way to help those individuals. So let's say, for example, looking at Biden's new package that he just put into play for harm reduction, we are having a lot of pushback from some of the states saying that it is condoning the use of drugs. However, they're not looking at the positives that, that come from harm reduction programs, such as looking at safe injection sites, looking at providing test strips that can indicate if there is a substance that has fentanyl. I think that a lot of individuals get lost with these harm reduction programs because they're not seeing the ultimate goal, which is to reduce drug overdoses in the U.S. And one of the biggest things that I try to do when I cover this and talk about it is the stigma is, well, it's an addict and they're doing it to themselves. That's a lie. The addiction is a bomb that goes off in these families and these communities because it destroys not only the person, it destroys their families. This puts enormous taxation on healthcare facilities, criminal justice facilities, the legal system, the court systems, the social service, especially in smaller communities or inner cities or places that are already strapped for resources. These are absolute bombs going off that cross a lot of streams of different things, and they're just almost impossible to deal with, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. And it's really hard for individuals to realize that this is definitely a community-oriented effort, and it takes a lot. It's a, it's a heavy lift because you have to have a lot of hands in the pot. You have to have, you know, enough funding for sites. You have, a, have to have enough um, support from your policymakers as well as those who are in the city, in the state, then on the federal level. And so although this is a heavy lift, I think that individuals tend to really give up and don't see that end goal, which is reducing the drug overdoses. And by also understanding that while we're curbing the drug overdoses, we're also preventing more deadlier drugs to come out on the street. For example, we have a new we have a new flood of drug known as benzodope, which is effectively just benzos that are combined with fentanyl, heroin, or cocaine. And what this does is it gives the user an even higher chance of overdosing. And unfortunately, benzodope has been shown to not, um, is not affected by Narcan. Narcan cannot reverse overdoses uh, for benzodope as of right now. So what we're seeing is that users aren't getting help they continue to graduate to more harmful drugs, which then opens up even more opportunities for drug traffickers um, who can come up with different cutting agencies and make drugs even more dangerous. Yeah. And it's important what you just said, because people are like, well, why is the overdose spiking? One of the reasons they're overdosing and they're spiking and the death count has gone way, way up, even though the drug use hasn't uh, gone up in a, a measurable same way. This new fentanyl, the benzodope you're talking about, these are not the drugs that we have been traditionally dealing with. This is a whole new beast. And even hardened drug users that their system is used for it, this stuff is just absolutely deadly, sometimes on the first take. This is very different than what we've been seeing over the past, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. What we're also seeing is now that we have fentanyl has our attention here in the U.S., Again, we are seeing these drug traffickers who are able to find new ways to cut these drugs to make it cheaper, as well as easier to move. So they're always looking at the end of the day, their profit, how much money they can make. 
In addition, we're also having other individuals who, again, are making their own home labs, if you will, to create these drugs and then sell them. And the other problem with this, and we kind of already touched on it, but you mentioned it in your piece, I want to make sure we highlight it. The other parts that come with this, especially in black communities, poverty stricken communities, um, incarceration, STDs, mental health problems, then all the criminality comes in with that. There's no way to separate all that when you're dealing with drug use, especially when the drugs are getting more and more potent, which is going to affect these people more and more. Absolutely. You cannot, you cannot disconnect the consequences of drug abuse within these communities. But then what also makes it worse is that they do not have the means to get the help that they need. So you're seeing more drug overdoses within the Black communities, communities of color. Another thing that I would also like to note is that because of, I guess, the lower, the lower seat, if you will, that colored individuals are on when it comes to our social hierarchy ladder, they are more exposed to the, the supply chain being lower, which makes them more prone to be exposed to stronger drugs, just given the fact that they are going hand in hand with the drug dealers themselves who are on the street. Yeah. Finesse Moreno Rivera joining us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back. We're going to talk about some of the policy stuff like that, uh, that deal with the war on drugs. Trump, some of the stuff Biden's doing just recently didn't make a whole lot of headlines, but makes a whole lot of difference in how the war on drug is prosecuting. Then we're going to get into some solutions, hopefully. What can we do about a problem that seems nigh near unsolvable? Finesse Moreno Rivera joining us on her tell more with her right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're talking about the war on drugs, which is one of the worst named things ever for something that has been highly destructive, very expensive, and has gotten us nothing closer to what it was set out to do. We're talking to Finesse Moreno Rivera about it. Um, let's talk some of the policy stuff here. You walked us through it in your piece and Blavity. We're linking to it like we always tell you. Please read the entire piece for yourself. And she links to a lot of source documentation that you also need to read up on this. Look, information is the key to a complex issue. And this has a lot of information in it. Um, before we get to Biden, you already mentioned him. Let's back up. The Trump administration in 2018 did some temporary class widening scheduling of fentanyl stuff. This has repercussions. But for folks that don't know, when we're talking about the drug classes and that sort of thing, what is it and what does it mean when they do things like that? Usually what this means is that they can be very much harsher punishment for individuals, no matter the weight or the amount of the given drug. So this is very similar to looking back at crack cocaine itself. We're looking at the sentencing disparity in the amount of the drug itself. So instead of looking at the harm that it causes, it's really looking at, at the amount that the individual may be possessing at the time. Yeah, and you have the stat here that uh, the majority of offenders arrested on this program are black street-level dealers at the end of the drugs distribution chain, not the movers and the distributors that, you know, they claim that they're normally going after. Law enforcement like everybody else. They like to get the lowest hanging fruit. Quoting you here, very few incarcerations have mitigated the availability supply of fentanyl. As of 2019, 75% of individuals prosecuted and sentenced for the fentanyl offenses 
or people of color. But then the next paragraph, you bring it up, the real problem here, the Biden administration, they also extended the scheduling policy last year and this year both. What does it mean in practical terms that they continue to continue this policy? To repeat myself. Absolutely. What this means in layman's terms is that they are continuing the same thing that they did with crack cocaine in that, unfortunately, what we're starting to see is that instead of seeing the suppliers, the individuals who should be incarcerated, we're seeing these low-level we're seeing these low-level individuals who are providing the drugs, predominantly African-American, going back into the jail and prison systems due to their involvement with fentanyl. This isn't ever, you know, this is whack-a-mole. If all you're doing is hitting the street-level stuff, and you've got the stats in your piece about how much of this comes through from overseas, how much of this goes through government-controlled points of access, they they're not stopping this stuff. They're just getting the street level folks. That's doing absolutely nothing for the wider problem other than, you know, filling the prisons up with street level people who are mostly repeat offenders anyway, right? Absolutely, Andrew. And unfortunately, right now what we're seeing with our incarceration rates is about 85% of individuals who are currently incarcerated are incarcerated given their use of drugs or selling of drugs. So this really isn't doing much of anything. However, Looking back at Trump's administration, the move is what they thought was good at the time, considering that fentanyl, the source is predominantly from China. And although China has tried to regulate their fentanyl chemical manufacturing, again, criminals will be criminals. They always be finding this loophole. And so what you'll find is a lot of individuals such as myself can get online, Facebook, um, or the dark web. and able to purchase chemicals that are similar to fentanyl and create my own products myself and then sell it on the street. And as you bring up in your piece, um, the problem with, you know, prohibition, which is just we're going to have this war on drugs and it's going to be this massive federal funding and it's the main income stream for law enforcement and right on down the line, is it exacerbates all the problems already inherent in the system. Racial biases, drug overdoses, disease, corruption, uh, the violence that goes around it, all of that gets exasperated because now it's a business model on top of being a criminal philosophy of trying to abate crime, right? Yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a perfect business model if you think about it. I mean, unfortunately, what's happening is, is, again, people of color are the ones who are paying the price for this. No one's really taking any, no one's really taking any type of responsibility in admitting that what we continue to do is wrong, what we have done is wrong, and we're still continuing to make the same mistakes. Black individuals are the ones who continue to pay for these mistakes as well. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now, especially with Biden's extension for fentanyl, it's not getting any better. And although he may be enacting these harm reduction programs, he still is not doing any better with keeping Black predominantly black males out of jails and prisons. Now, there is some good news on this. You took a public health approach to some of your solutions that you would like to see put out. Um, Black Americans statistically do respond really well to public health programs. We've got statistics, they do. So what's a couple of the things you were pointing out that they should take more of a public health and prevention standpoint than a punitive and law enforcement standpoint that might actually do some good here? 
Absolutely. Some of the solutions include safe injecting sites. I know that there was a lot of uproar on um, online as well as a lot of jokes with Biden mentioning with his harm reduction programs, you know, syringes, for example, free syringes. That's a big deal because that also prevents diseases. So I know also there was a lot of pushback from the communities for safe injecting sites. Let's be honest, who wants a safe injecting site right down the street, say from, you know, their, their kids' school or right around the corner from their, from their neighborhood? So that's something that has had a lot of pushback, but has also shown to be very successful in preventing, again, the long-term goal of drug overdoses. Yeah, and one of the ones that popped through um, the news cycle and made headlines uh, back uh, a couple months ago was the crack pipe sleeve thing, if you remember that one, where everybody mm-hmm. got in an uproar because they were, well, because the problem is they were sharing pipes and spreads hepatitis C and were having HIV spikes in drug communities and everything else. So they were trying to do that. And everybody went, no, 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 they're giving out crack pipes. It's like, well, these are people that's going to do that anyway. So th- this goes back, and I'm going to ask the question again, because we touched on it at the beginning of our conversation, but I think it bears emphasis. How do you have that conversation with somebody who's just going to hear the term pipe or just going to hear the term injection site or syringe and they're just going to recoil? Is there any way to have that conversation with somebody who's like, no, you can't go from zero to 60 on addiction. You've got to give them some intermediate steps. These are those intermediate steps or you get these communicable diseases that are not going to stay confined to just the drug community. Unfortunately, what I found when speaking with individuals who don't condone harm reduction who do get that pushback is they have yet to experience something that in their life and life is part of living and learning and not that i would ever wish anyone to themselves or have a loved one who has been through um drug addiction but it's really something that you don't see that is important and steps that need to be taken unless you lived it yourself or been in that situation or lived in those communities so until we are able to have those open conversations and learn from each other, I honestly don't know how we're going to get over this negative stigma of individuals who do need assistance when working with drug abuse. Now, you had touched on the one that's the real uh, firing point for a lot of the debate over the drug. You bring up decriminalization. Get into the nomenclature for me because legalizing and decriminalization are two different things. So how are you using it and define the term for folks so that they all know what we're talking about here? Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up, Andrew. So there are different definitions for decriminalization. And a lot of different countries or even states, as I cited within the article for Oregon, define it in different ways. For myself, I would see decriminalization as non-punishable depending upon the amount of drug. And when I say decriminalization, I also mean decriminalizing, making legal, non-punishable, all drugs that we're seeing. I think it's also important to note, too, by doing so, we can really work on the racial bias that we're seeing. We can work on um, the diseases that are being spread. We can work on the corruption that's occurring. We can also work on taking away the power of of these drug smugglers and drug traffickers themselves. We started out talking about the war on drugs and the history of it. We mentioned the opioid crisis. What's some of the lessons from the war on drugs that we should be applying to the opioid crisis? How much of it is a continuation and maybe an evolving of the same problem? How much of it is a very different thing that should be addressed differently, do you think? I think that the opioid crisis is something that should be, should be addressed 
separately. And unfortunately, I see it being ongoing. There have been three waves in the opioid crisis. The first being, unfortunately, the abuse of prescription drugs, which was the over, which was caused by overprescribing the opioids, thank you, Purdue Pharma. Going on to second, given the fact that supply and demand was interrupted by this, um, individuals were the high, the demand was high for opioids, but the supply wasn't there. So then you are seeing the second wave individuals shifting to heroin. And now in our third wave, which is even more deadlier, is fentanyl, which is also, as I've already discussed, combined with cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, which is also driving our drug overdoses. So unfortunately, we really have to take this opioid crisis completely different because what we're seeing is that it's going in waves for us in this country. And as of right now, we are starting to shift primarily into a fourth wave where I do believe that instead of being reliant upon opioids such that are plant-based in themselves, we're going to start seeing a lot more deaths as we have already seen with fentanyl that are man-made. I really do think that we're starting to make a move because of opioids into a more synthetic space for drug use. And that's just going to become even more deadlier for us. Yeah, it's going to be more deadly for the people. It's going to be a whole lot harder to police because now you don't need a supply chain. You can make this stuff in your sink. It's going to be a real big mess. Let's round this off this way. Uh, Finesse Moreno Rivera joining us. Um, How do we we understand the federal government is a leviathan and it's hard to get a hold of it for any good reason whatsoever? What can the average person do to start talking about this? I'm talking about on their social media. I'm talking about amongst their friends and family when these things come up, maybe in their communities when they're having, you know, a community meeting about, you know, we just had it in Parkersburg, West Virginia, where they shut down trying to get a rehab for suddenly build, even though they badly need one because the residents freaked out. Stuff like that. How can people in a practical way, not buzzwords, not theory, not, you know, the big things we talk about, just when they're talking to each other on Facebook or texting or whatever the case may be, that can move this conversation forward, that they can start mixing into their discussions of, hey, this is actually a problem that we all need to deal with and we can do this X, Y, Z. I think it's really important for there to be open you know, conversation and discussion, similar to what you just said, Andrew, being able to be open and speaking with others. I think it's also very important that we continue to educate each other. A lot of times, again, thinking about a socioeconomic level, just really having uh, those silos created. And unfortunately, really can hamper our conversations about things that may be affecting others more than ourselves. I think that just taking the time to also getting to know your community getting to know your neighbor, paying attention to what's going on within your surroundings as well. Because when you open your eyes, you're walking down streets, no matter if it's within a small town, whether that's in a city, you can really tell the detriment that has occurred due to drug use, uh, drug abuse. Um, And so I think it's really time for us as a country to really open our eyes, be honest, take responsibility, and start making the movement to help these individuals in taking a more health avenue rather than taking a more punitive one. Yeah, and I I always tell people when we talk about this, you've got to see this as a people problem first, not a policy problem. That's where this goes sideways mm-hmm. first and foremost. Like these are people, and you got to fix them like people. And people are complicated. You're not going to be able to you know get a spreadsheet and get a solution and fix this thing. It's a people problem. Uh, Finesse Moreno Rivera, outstanding stuff. Really hard topic. So let's end on something good here. 
I got to know about this orchid back here because I, I've done orchids <laughs> for years to various effects. I had a great one in Germany, had to leave it there because of regulations. Not so good lately, but tell me about the orchid because I love <laughs> that thing back there. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Andrew. As of right now, myself and my fiance, we have over 40 plants within our home. Our good very, Lord. You know, small dwelling and we have over 10 orchids that are thriving just like the one right behind me um it's very very pleasant it's very soothing and as a criminal justice <laughs> expert i really need to take the time to make sure my environment around me is beautiful and supports a very healthy um, atmosphere for me <laughs> so i really enjoy having orchids especially because they're beautiful and they're worth putting in the time for I've got one on the other side of my desk that you can't see that I had to trim down. It's back down to the leaves. So I got to wait till the spring to get anything off it. But uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you, you have an addiction to orchids, duly noted. We'll uh, work up a piece for that. <laughs> uh, Vanessa Moreno Rivera, outstanding stuff today. Uh, until we get you back on the show again, let folks know where they can keep up with you and what you have going on and how they can follow you until they hear from you again on her tell. Absolutely. So I will continue to, put out more of my work um, as of right now I'm working on something else looking at mass incarceration particularly looking at how we can humanize it um, as much as we possibly can obviously not as close to we can uh, for Europe but that's coming soon as of right now I'm also working on putting up Instagram um, but if anyone's interested in my work or any other articles please feel free to reach out to Young Voices um, as well as my LinkedIn profile, which is just Tanesh Marino Rivera. Yep, and we'll link to all that in the show notes, including the piece that we were working off of in Blavity, uh, War on Drugs and American Casualties, especially the Black community. We're going to keep talking about this. We're glad you're one of the people advocating for it. So you're going to come back, and we're going to keep talking about it. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, ma'am. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Hi, welcome back. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, there's trouble down south. Uh, let's go to the AP, Mexico City. Mexico's president has begun exploring plans to sidestep Congress to hand formal control of the National Guard to the Army, a move that could lead 
to extending the military's control over policing in a country with high levels of violence. That has raised concerns because President Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO for short, won approval for creating the force in 2019 by pledging in the Constitution that it would be under nominal civilian control and that the Army would be off the streets by 2024. Neither the National Guard nor the military have been able to lower the insecurity in the country. However, this past week, drug cartels staged widespread arson and shooting attacks, terrifying civilians in three main northwest cities in a bold challenge to the state. And on Saturday, authorities sent 300 Army Special Forces and 50 National Guard members to the border city of Tijuana. Still, AMLO told uh, wants to keep the soldiers involved in policing and remove civilian control over the National Guard, whose officers and commanders are mostly soldiers with military training and pay grades. The president no longer has the votes in Congress to amend the Constitution and must suggest he may try to do it as a regulatory change with a simple majority in the Congress or by an executive order, or he may see if the courts will just uphold him doing it. AMLO warned Friday against politicizing the issue, saying the military isn't needed to fight Mexico's violent drug cartels, but then he immediately politicized it himself. Quote, a constitutional reform would be ideal, but we have to look for ways because instead of helping us, they are blocking us, meaning his opposition. They are intent to prevent us from doing anything. The two main opposition parties also had a different position when they were in power. They supported the Army in public safety roles during their respective administrations beginning in 2006, running airports and trains, stopping migrants, and overseeing customs at seaports. Mexico's army has been deeply involved in the policing since the start of the 2006 drug war. But its presence was always understood as temporary, a stopgap until Mexico could build trustworthy police forces. AMLO appears to abandon that plan, instead making the military and quasi-military forces like the National Guard the main solution. Their mandate has to be prolonged, he said. Um, the concern here um, by others, as you read down in the piece from the AP, is the problem with using the military and civilian roles is that we don't have any control over what goes on inside. Uh, that's from Ana Lorena Delegadillo, director of the Civic Group Foundation for Justice. Perhaps more to the point, the quasi-military National Guard has not been able to bring down the Mexico's stubbornly high homicide rate. Why are we bringing this up? Keeping an eye down south, AMLO and his reign is showing a few tendencies towards dictatorship and dictatorial power. He's been reusing their constitution in a couple different ways. We talked about this a while back with our friend Gabriel Salazar Singh. You should go back and listen to that if you haven't. We'll make sure to link to it. And we're going to work on getting a guest and talk about the current situation in Mexico. That's our neighbor to the south. They are close to us. They trade with us. And as we all know well too well, things that happen down there tend to spill over the border to here. So we need to pay close attention to it. That's the deal going on in Mexico. We'll continue to cover it. You'll have to do a little homework yourself and form your own opinion. And we'll do more Herd Tell right after this. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tell we always try to end on a good note or something positive. This is out of Houston. Um, 27 year old Texas student came to fatherhood in an astonishing way. Jimmy Amazon discovered a screaming four month old infant lying in the trash bin in his home country of Haiti, where he was visiting, according to the mirror. Emily Emilio Angel Jeremiah's body was overwhelmed. Other people stood around and refused to take immediate action. Everyone was just staring at him. Not a single soul wanted to help, Amazon said. He was crying and he had no clothes on. I could see the pain in the eyes and I had to do something. Amazon was eager to take him home. He and his mother, Elise, ensured that the baby boy was cleaned up and had a full stomach. The young man had long helped the unfortunate. The Daily Mail reports that the communications and elections media student at Texas State University brought gifts for the children at an orphanage where he used to be a volunteer. During this short period of time, police investigated into Jeremiah's family but had no luck. Amazon jumped at the opportunity to require legal guardianship before naming the child Emilio Angel Jeremiah. To date, Amazon travels frequently between Texas and Gonalves, Haiti, where his mother is currently taking care of the little one. When I was asked to raise him, I stayed awake for days, and tossing and turning, trying to make a decision. I was already behind on my university fees. My family had always struggled to make ends meet. He continued, but I didn't have a dad growing up, and that poor child was facing the same thing, a lifetime of instability and uncertainty. Something inside me was telling me that this had happened for a reason, so I took a leap of faith. Sometimes you don't have to know what you're doing. You just have to be ready to do it. Amazon needs to raise um, a certain amount of money for the adoption process, and he has started a fund to do so. It's been an incredible journey watching him grow, and it's been rewarding. I'm so very proud of him, he said, according to the mirror. I had to do what I had to do when I mean, no one else wanted to do it. And I'm so grateful for the past four and a half years. Great story. Good on him. We'll link to it in the show notes. If you want to more, know more about him, they'll do it on her tell. Appreciate you watching on YouTube or listening on any of the podcasting platforms. Uh, thrilled to have you with us. However, you're joining us just quick reminder. If you would, however you're watching or listening, make sure you're subscribing and make sure you leave a comment and a rating if you have an option to do so. It's really important for a couple of reasons. One is it lets people know about our program. Two is it helps us track who is and isn't watching and listening to the program. You can also get a hold of us directly. Show at gmail.com. Show gmail at the Twitter. We would love to hear from you. Also, uh, the new podcast, Deep Dive into CPAC, is up. Got it up over the weekends. I've had tremendous response to it. Really good firsthand information on the story was the headlines matching what was going on and some stuff that was going on. The headlines didn't catch up to to the national audience. Uh, our friend Chris Schlock is our guest on that. Make sure you do not miss that. Uh, thrilled to carry programs like what we did today. 
we're going to keep doing it as long as you keep listening. So wherever you are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we will talk to you again soon on the next Hurtel. All the music on Hurtel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.